Well, you deserve a certificate. You've been faithful for 17 weeks in the book of Numbers. That's the longest we've ever, ever gone through that book. So uh, the graduation certificates will be available afterwards. Tonight we finished the book of Numbers. And I've enjoyed it, but I'm glad we're finishing it. As you turn to Numbers chapter 34 tonight, I would ask that you would evaluate the level of your involvement tonight. And if you think that uh, you won't be able to stay for our Bible study, it'll last six and a half hours, it'll last just an hour, then um, if you don't think you can handle an hour of Bible study, that's just, uh, somebody up front said, you're a wimp. (laughs) That's what I was thinking, but I didn't want to say that. It's true. In in many countries I visit, they will gladly sit for up to four or five hours because they walk early Sunday morning. And since they've walked for miles and many hours, they want to make it worth their while. Uh, They don't have an air-conditioned car to jump in and go to a restaurant in and go watch something on television. They're there for the duration. So uh, tonight, uh, we'll be here for till about 8 o'clock. If you don't think you can hang with that, uh, we understand, not really, but we make allowances for it. And so we would ask you to move to the very back as we bow our heads in prayer. Then if you were to leave, you wouldn't be a distraction. And uh, we know you don't want to be that. We hope (laughs) you don't want to be that. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you tonight that you have enabled us over the weeks and months to study your revelation, the way you have dealt with your people, managed them, spoke to them, disciplined them, And through it all, love them. We thank you, Lord, for the many lessons we have gleaned and applied personally. And we have understood your character. Our vision of you has been broadened. Depth has been added to it. And we thank you, Lord, that in your curriculum you have given us this book of Numbers. For all these things were written beforehand for our admonition. And so, Father, as we finish it out tonight, Help us to glean these final lessons in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to plant a question in your mind as we begin tonight. I'm going to ask the question and just kind of plant it there and then go back to it. Are you an inventory taker or are you a window shopper spiritually? An inventory taker is glad for what he or she has in stock. A window shopper is always looking around and just drooling over what they don't have rather than thinking and being thankful for what they already have. There's two types of people. There's the inventory taker, then there's the window shopper. We'll get back to that in a minute, but I I kind of want to give an overview of where we've come from and where we are. The Bible begins, of course, with the first book, the book of Genesis. It's the book of beginnings. It's the beginnings of God's plan for salvation of the world. The beginning of creation is given. The beginning of a nation through the beginning of a family. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And the book closes with this family going down to Egypt. And the book of Exodus opens with this family in Egypt growing to be a great nation. Crying out for deliverance because there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And that family that became a nation that was not only being tolerated, but giving great latitude and growing 
is now being persecuted. And they cry out for a deliverer, and God sends them Moses. And so by great acts of mercy toward Israel and acts of judgment toward Egypt, God delivers the children of Israel with a mighty hand. And then we get to the next book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus, which is the giving of the law at Sinai, not only the Ten Commandments, but all of the law of God. And as it's given, the plans of a tabernacle are also given, this odd tent-like structure that was there in the wilderness that they also carried into the promised land. Worship is outlined in that book as they are told to worship God in a prescribed manner by animal sacrifices. Why? Because their sins separate them from God. So God, as an act of mercy, shows them how they can have fellowship and worship and draw close to God through this system. Then we get to the book of Numbers. We've been there for a long time. The book of Numbers is wasted Time, Not all wasted time, but much of it. They journey from Sinai to Kadesh and eventually from Kadesh to Moab as they overlook the land, but it's not a short book. It takes them all together about 40 years. As we recalled, I think in our first study, the book of Numbers in Hebrew is called Bemidar, or in the wilderness, because it says, God spoke to Moses, Bemidar, in the wilderness. That's the first sentence of the book. That's how it opens up, and so the Hebrews called it in the wilderness, which is a good description of the book, because so much of the time is spent out in the desert, in the Thule. So it opens up at Sinai, then in the wilderness, then finally it closes, as we'll see tonight at the end of chapter 36, overlooking the land of promise on that high plateau in modern-day Jordan, looking over up by the Arnon River down into the land before they enter the land uh, in the book of Joshua. We've tried to divide the book a couple different ways. You could slice it in two, chapters 1 to 26, and then chapters 26 or 27, 1 to 25, 26 to 36. You could divide it in two by the numberings of Israel. The first generation was numbered in chapter 1. They kicked the bucket. And now in chapter 26, to the rest of the book, is the second generation, the second numbering. But we have chosen to give it a different outline, haven't we? Chapters 1 through 10, we called it organization. Because in those chapters, not only are the children of Israel numbered and an army is conscripted, but there's an organization that takes place to their marching. You know, they had to go by rank and file and by tribal allotment so that you could manage two to three million people instead of just saying, all right, everybody, go for it. It'd be pandemonium. So there was an order, an organization. Then in around chapter 11 to chapter 25, we've called that disorganization because they start wandering after they're complaining they become very disorganized as their sinful complaining sets in. And for 38 years and 10 months, they wander around. You see, it's about 150 miles from Sinai to Kadesh. It should have taken them 11 days, Deuteronomy tells us. It took them a total of 40 years. In this book, 38 years and 10 months. But a total of 40 years. Twelve spies had already scoped out the land and spent 40 days in it. They came back 
gave a bad report, and so God said, fine, a year for every day. When you should have had a good report and you did not believe me, and so they were consigned to a 40-year wait. By that time, the first generation was dead, and now a new generation has come on the scene. And so we have this period of reorganization in the last few chapters. And that's what we've been in in the last few weeks, reorganization. This new generation is numbered, the army is conscripted, they're told how to march, and the finalities of the law are given. Uh, the name I've given to the book of Numbers, I don't know if any of you remember it, but we gave several names. Bemadar was the Hebrew name. Uh, the English Bible calls it the book of Numbers. It's been called the book of wanderings or the book of journeyings. I called it On the Road Again. <laughs> kind of after that song, On the Road Again. Moses and I are traveling on the road again. Because they never get off the road. They're always traveling. They never end up resting. And I know that that has no necessarily biblical significance, but I like the title. <laughs> and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, When you come, I love that, not if you make it, but when you come into the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan to its boundaries. Canaan represents something for us. That's the land of rest for them. It's the land of promise. It's the land of growth. But Canaan represents something to us. Let me tell you what it does not represent. It does not represent heaven. Now, why do I say that? I say that because there has been a traditional stream of thought that tries to equate Canaan with heaven and the Jordan River as physical death. You know, you die, you go over... Uh, the Jordan River. I don't know if that's where kick the bucket comes from or not, but... And after you get from one side of the river to the other side, the land of Canaan, that's heaven. Well, I don't think it is. By the way, that thought comes from some of the history of our nation. Uh, some of the Negro spirituals were written with such depth to them, such beauty, when under persecution they would look forward to deliverance via death. And so they had that beautiful, beautiful song, Sweet Low, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, Coming for to Carry Me Home. One of the verses, When I look over Jordan, coming for to carry me home, I see a band of angels coming after me, coming for to carry me home. And so the idea is that, you know, God will deliver me when this life ceases and I get to heaven. But that's really not a true depiction of the land of Canaan, because if Canaan represents heaven... You better be ready for a good fight when you get to heaven and a bit of failure when you get to heaven because when Joshua brought them into the land, it wasn't just a bed of roses. It wasn't smooth sailing. There were cities, walled cities, enemies, and they had to fight even though God gave them the land. Now, the Bible that I read tells me that when I get to heaven, it's going to be a time of peace. Paul the Apostle in the Philippian jail when uh, or in the Roman prison, writing to the Philippians, talked about this death that he was facing. He said, For me to live as Christ, to die as gain, I'm in a strait between two. I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Now, if heaven were a place of battles and struggles and pressure, he would have said, Hey, I, I know this is bad, but it's going to be worse on the other side. 
No, it's a place of rest. In the book of Revelation, heaven is described as a place where the gates are never shut, where the Lord God reigns, where God will wipe away every tear. So Canaan does not represent heaven. Canaan represents the full, rich, victorious Christian life that we can live now. Leaving that place of Egypt, but also leaving the wilderness of just wandering around and not making spiritual progress. So many are in that area. We've discussed that in the last several weeks. They become a Christian, but they see God as a spoke added to their wheel. I've got my life set the way I like it. You see, I'm in the middle. I'm the hub. And life revolves around me and my agenda, my design. And so I've got my job and I've got my friends and I've got my religion and I've got everything else that revolves around me, me, me. God won't have it that way. You are doomed to a wilderness if that is how your life map looks. Real victory comes by putting God in the center and entering into a life of total submission to Him, standing on His promises and walking in that life of faith into that new land. And so we see them about to go into the land of Canaan, and that is what it represents. So the boundaries of the land are given now in chapter 34. Your southern border shall be from the wilderness of Zin along the border of Edom. Then your southern border shall extend eastward to the end of the Salt Sea. God is simply telling them, here's the map of the territory that you will live in. Um, they begin with the southern border. Why do you figure? Because that's where they were. They were down south. So they moved from the most familiar to the most unfamiliar. They were coming down from the southern part, or they stayed there for a while. They move over to the east. So starting with the south, God describes the land, the southern border. Um, I don't know how much of this we should read. We'll read parts of it. Verse 4, Your border shall turn from the southern side of the ascent of Akrabim, Continue to Zin, beyond the south of Kadesh Barnea, it shall go to Hazar, Adar, and continue to Osmon. The border shall turn from Osmon to the brook of Egypt, and it shall end at the sea. And then the western border is given. This is a pretty easy border. It's the Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> you don't have to describe much of that. So God says, you shall have the great sea for a border. This shall be your western border. The Mediterranean is called the Great Sea to distinguish it between that and all of the other bodies of water in the Middle East. They called that little inlet, we call it the Red Sea. But when we think of a sea, we think of an ocean. Yet there's the Sea of Galilee. And it usually shocks people when they first go to Israel. They go, that's it? This odd-shaped body of water 700 feet below sea level, six miles wide at the best, 13 miles long. That's the Sea of Galilee. We would call that the Lake of Galilee. Then there's the Dead Sea, that body of water where the Jordan River, after flowing from the Sea of Galilee, ends in that salt mass, or that mass of salt water called the Dead Sea. This is the Great Sea, so that's the boundary to the west. And then the northern boundaries are given, and finally the eastern boundaries are given. Four borders, God tells them, this is going to be your land. Now, I always like to ask why when I get into a chapter, and the question I have in this chapter is, 
Why is God giving them all the borders? God has done that in the past. Well, for a few reasons. This is a new generation. And this would encourage them. Number two, it would give them the necessary information so they could write it down and they could have that as their goal to occupy. But number three, I think more than that, it is a testimony. It's sort of like, here's your title deed. Let me describe the free gift I'm going to give to you. Let me describe for you what you have to look forward to. And so as a testimony of God's love and goodness, God gives the dimensions of his free gift to them, which would bless them. Uh, turn with me over to the book of Ephesians for just a moment. Our gift and the dimensions thereof are written in the New Testament book of Ephesians. Beginning in verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ and himself, according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And it goes on to describe our wealth. We've been predestined. God has adopted us. And he goes through all of the stages until he finally says... In the ages to come, God will spend all of eternity demonstrating to you the depth of his love. It will take God forever to help us understand just how much he loves us. But in a beautiful description, it's sort of like Paul is saying, here's your title deed. Here's the dimensions of the gift. This is what God has done for you. I asked you a question at the beginning. Are you an inventory taker? or a window shopper. Now, it's fun to window shop for some people. I don't like shopping at all, basically. Uh, the way I do it is sort of like search and destroy mission. If I find I have a need in my wardrobe, because let's say I have socks with holes in them, okay, I want a pair of socks. I don't want to just wait around and look at other things. It's like, boom, boom, in and out. Then there are others who like to window shop, and that's fun to do, but you know, it can be frustrating because you go, oh, Look at that. And look, the price is cut in half. The trouble is, I'm at the end of my pay period and I'm out of cash. Even at half price, that's a score. I can't afford it. Oh, I wish I had that. And so we end up wishing for things we don't have rather than going home, looking in our closet and saying, look at what God has given. Many live their lives as window shoppers rather than as inventory takers. 
So many have their eyes focused on what God hasn't done for them yet, rather than on look what God has done. The Jewish people have a beautiful tradition to every year recount their blessings. And they do it in a little exercise around their feast. The exercise is called Dayenu, that is, it's enough. If God would have only done such and such, it would be enough. But he didn't. He did more. And if he would have stopped with that, that would have been enough. Let me share with you a copy of this. Had he brought us out of Egypt, but not punished the Egyptians. Had he brought us out of Egypt, Dayenu, it's enough. Had he merely punished Egypt, but did not destroy their idols, had he merely punished Egypt, Dayenu, had he merely smoked their idols, I like that terminology, but did not slay their firstborn, had he merely smoked their idols, Dayenu, had he merely slain their firstborn, but did not give us their assets, had he merely slain their firstborn, Dayenu, had he given us their assets, but did not split the sea for us, had he given us their assets, Dayenu, had he merely parted the sea, but did not bring us through it, had he merely parted the sea, Dayenu, had he merely brought us through it, but did not drown our oppressors, had he merely brought us through it, Dayenu, had he drowned our oppressors, but did not provide for forty years, had he merely drowned our oppressors, Dayenu, had he merely provided for forty years, but did not supply us manna, had he merely provided for forty years, Dayenu, had he merely supplied manna, but did not give us the Sabbath, had he merely supplied manna, Dayenu, had he given us the Sabbath, but did not bring us to Sinai, had he given us the Sabbath, Dayenu, had he brought us to Mount Sinai, but did not give us the Torah, had he brought us to Mount Sinai, Dayenu, had he given us the Torah, but did not give us Israel, had he given us the Torah, Dayenu, had he merely given us Israel, but did not build the temple, had he merely given us Israel, Dayenu. You get the gist of it? Look what God has done, and if he only did a fraction of it, it would have been enough. Now, of course, their forefathers didn't think that. Every time God bless them, we want more. What about me? What about my needs? However, God now says, here is the gift. Let me tell you all about it. This is what you have to look forward to. You and your children, how you will occupy it. So be an inventory taker. Rather than looking at that black dot on your white sheet, look at all the white that surrounds it. And rather than sinking into that horrid poisonous disease of complaining. Begin to thank God for what you have in Christ Jesus. The borders are given. Verse 12. The borders shall go down along the Jordan, and it shall end at the salt sea. It's the dead sea. And it's dead because it's got salt in it. Not just ordinary salt, the ocean has 5% saline solution. This has 25%. Not much can live, but a lot can float. And if you would ever like to, let's say you can't swim, but you just want to see what it's like, just go to the Dead Sea and just kick back, grab a newspaper or a Time magazine or a Bible. You can literally sit there and just float. You don't have to do anything. Kick back and just read something. If you'd like to float all the way across over to the country of Jordan, you're welcome to do that. But it's the, uh, 
salt sea, the Dead Sea. This shall be your land with its surrounding boundaries. And Moses commanded the children of Israel, This is the land which you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half. For the tribe of the children of Reuben, according to the house of their fathers, and the tribe of the children of Gad, according to the house of their fathers, have received their inheritance, and the half-tribe of Manasseh has received its inheritance. The two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance on this side of the Jordan, across from Jericho eastward toward the sunrise. God gave them a land as a gift. Approximately 300,000 square miles at the zenith of their history. Under David and Solomon, they occupied 30,000, a tenth of all that God promised. The boundaries are interesting. I was looking in an atlas today and seeing that the land of Israel in the borders God gave are very different from today's borders. Originally, what God promised goes past the border north and encompasses Lebanon, a good chunk of Syria, a good chunk of Jordan, and then down south encompassing Israel. I know that her neighbors would not agree with God's giving of borders, but that was the intention, the design. It even covered pretty far east. But the idea is that I want to get across is that Israel never took it all. They never occupied all of the land that God promised them to have. Why? Well, God gave them a precondition. He said, it's yours. But you have to do what? Walk in it. Set your foot in the land. You just don't look at it and go, that's mine. You have to walk in it. You have to, by faith, appropriate it. And now, right there is the problem that many Christians have. We can talk all about what God has given, yet a lot of us never enjoy it all. We've got the title deed, but we never enjoy it. Because I think we don't go out by faith and, and stand and walk through the land and claim those promises by faith, live in obedience to those promises, and really see the work of God firsthand. Peter puts it this way in his second epistle in the New Testament. He said, God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the power of him who called us by glory and virtue, whereby are given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that by these you may be a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Therefore, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control Perseverance and to perseverance, you know, brotherly kindness, love, and all these attributes are given. Then he says, If these things are in you and abound, you will never be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he who lacks these things is short sighted even to blindness and has not remembered that he has been purged from his old sins. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, the first nine verses. The idea is this is what God has done. This is what he's provided. Now, don't sit there and go, huh, cool. Add to your faith all of these attributes. Let these things abound in you. He says if these things are yours and abound, you'll never be unfruitful. You'll never be barren. The word barren means 
not working or it doesn't work. If you are constantly adding, growing, appropriating, you will never end up a spiritual casualty like some who would say, look, I tried Christianity, man. It doesn't work. No, you didn't work. We're not saved by works. I didn't say you were. But once you get over that line into the promised land, you've got to walk around it. You've got to appropriate it. You've got to stand and believe those promises and watch God work on your behalf. And so you might say, I'm saved. I would say, are you enjoying your inheritance? It's yours. Go back tonight and meditate when you get home on Ephesians 1. The wealth of the believer. Look at it. Check it out. That's yours. That's your title deed. Charles Spurgeon said, most Christians as to their river of experience wade up to their ankles. There are some brave souls, said Spurgeon, who make it up to their knees in that river of experience. There are some precious souls who make it up to their waist, but there are few, oh, how few, said Charles Spurgeon, who find it a river whose bottom they cannot touch. It's up to you. God has so much, that unfathomable depth, that you've got to appropriate it. Yet, I find so many spiritual misers there's a guy by the name of John Wendell, died in 1915 in New York City. Had a little uh, uh, house in Manhattan. And um, he stayed a bachelor all of his life. He didn't want to marry and disperse the wealth. Now, now get this, this guy was so greedy, so stingy, that somehow he talked his five sisters into not marrying and living in that house. Eventually, several of them got out and got their own house. But when one of his sisters died in 1931, she was worth $100 million. Yet, here's the kicker. She didn't have a telephone. She didn't have electricity. She didn't have a car. She had one dress, tattered. And she would wrap herself in a towel, wash that dress, put it on. She had so much to enjoy, but she never enjoyed it. You've got such an inventory spiritually. Enjoy it. Dig in. Step out and say, what adventure does God have for me today? What spiritual mischief can I get into? Let me go rummaging through the basement and through the attic and see what treasures God has. Dig in. Appropriate. Then God, in verses 16 onward, leaders are appointed by Moses. These are the names of the men who shall divide the land among you as an inheritance, and their list is given, and you are free to look up those names and read them to your heart's content. I draw your attention now to verse 29. These are the ones that the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance among the children of Israel in the land of of Canaan. A sense of accomplishment is in that verse. This is the second generation. First one's dead and gone. New ones have come. They're on the border of the land, and there's new leaders that are there to appropriate the land to them. Now, before we get into uh, chapter 35, something else about the land of Canaan. It was never earned, was it? It was given as a gift. God said, here it is. You've got to appropriate it, but you can't earn it. It's a gift. I'm giving it to you. Here's the borders of it. Now, go for it. Take the land. It's all yours. 
Your salvation is a gift, right? You didn't earn it. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's a free gift. What an insult it is to God to try to become deserving. I'm so unworthy, I'm so undeserving. Oh, move from that wretched position. I'm not worthy. Who is? I'm not deserving. Welcome to the crowd. No one here is deserving. And the more you press that, it's almost an insult. God says, here, I want to give you that. Oh, I don't deserve it. Well, here, it's a gift. No, I don't deserve it. Imagine if somebody tried to give you a gift. They bought something for you, and they want you to have it, and they give it to you, and you go, I'm not worthy. Well, here, take it anyway. I don't deserve it. Well, it's a gift. Well, I'll pay you back. Well, I think a gift denotes that it's free. You don't ever have to pay me back. No strings attached. I hear that when lifeguards try to rescue people, it's really difficult if the person in the water tries to help the lifeguard. The lifeguard's out there, rushes out there, the waves are all about him, and the guy starts flailing his arms and kicking as if he's helping the lifeguard. I've even heard where lifeguards said they have to like smack the guy in the head or render him unconscious even to get him to so that they can drag him in. Don't worry, he's a lifeguard. He's been licensed. He'll save you. God's trained to save people. He, he can manage it. He's a spiritual lifeguard. You have to say, here, God, let me help you flail your arms around. It's a gift. It's a free gift. Now, even as salvation is a gift, like Canaan was a gift, Canaan was also a process. God gave it to them, but they didn't inherit it instantaneously in all of its dimension. They had to walk through it as a process. Exodus 23, God said, I will not drive your enemies out from before you in one year lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little will I drive out the inhabitants of the land that you may inherit the land which I gave you. And so spirituality and growing in Christ and appropriating is not instantaneous. There are no shortcuts. If there were, believe me, if I knew them, I'd tell you. It is a process. Spiritual growth is not a little light switch. Wave a magic wand. Say, hallelujah, I claim it in Jesus' name, amen. Boom, it's all over, no more trials. Nor is it going getting a demon cast out of you because you've got some sin or malady. So I'll get a demon cast out of me and all of a sudden I have instant deliverance. Let, let me tell you something. If this worked, that Christians had demons, the demon of uh, hate and the, the demon of smoking and uh, the demon of not getting along with people and the demon of late. Listen. I've got all those. I'm a sinner like every... If it worked where I could just go get them cast out, I'd get them done in one fell swoop. It's like I'd find every bad problem and say, you know, just deliver them all because I want to be instantly sanctified and grow. But it doesn't work that way. It's a process, little by little. The Bible says walk in the Spirit. That denotes steady spiritual progress. He didn't say sporadically sprint in the Spirit, be instantaneously zapped by the Spirit. Walk. Well, I'd rather take a helicopter and just be airlifted from mountain peak experience to mountain peak. I don't want any valleys. No, you need valleys. And you've got to walk through the valleys, sometimes the valley of the shadow of death. 
But it's a process, and we cooperate with that process and inherit the land. So I like to look at the Christian life. Like the land of Canaan, you're in it. Now there's a process of occupying it. Go for it. Don't sit. Walk in the Spirit. Like I like to say, Christianity is not a Popeye episode. Do you know what I mean by that? Remember when Popeye was down, what did he do? Spinach, man. Open a can. And he wiped Brutus out. Well, it doesn't work that way in Christianity. It's not like, oh, I'll just hmm, take something magical and wave the little wand and I can just take anybody on. No, it's a process, little by little. Cooperate with that. And that, that should actually relieve you. Lest you think, I need to be Joe spiritual, you know, weightlifter. No. God will give you, often, more slack than you give yourself. Or than you give others. Next time you look at somebody and go, why aren't they as spiritual as I am? You may not say that, but you've thought that. Look at that carnal person. Just remember, you were there once. Give them a little slack and mercy. God does, little by little. Now in chapter 35, there's Levitical cities. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Command the children of Israel that they give the Levites cities to dwell in from the inheritance of your possession, and you shall give the Levites common land around the city. They shall have the cities to dwell in, and their common land shall be for their cattle, for their herds, and for all their animals. Forty-eight cities were given to the Levites. Free. They ministered in the tabernacle. They get free towns. And they were carved out by all of the tribes who lived in the territory. Total of 48 cities. So that you had Levites uh, in a smattering all around the land of Israel. Not just down in Jerusalem. But there was these reminders of the heart of the nation is the spiritual life by having the cities of the Levites scattered throughout the land. Verse 4. The common land of the cities which you shall give the Levites shall extend from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits, or 500 yards in all directions from the perimeter of the city wall. Now keep in mind that these ancient cities weren't all that big. Uh, don't think of them in terms of the square miles of this town. Uh, if you come to Israel, we'll show you some of the digs that tell and uh, describe uh, the perimeters of a city. But these small uh, polises, these cities that were on the hills with the walls, they would uh, mark out 500 yards around them. That would be the cattle and the farming land uh, for the Levites. Verse 5, you shall measure outside the city on the east side 2,000 cubits, or a total of 1,000 yards, on the south side, 1,000 cubits. On the west side, uh, or 2,000 cubits. On the north side, 2,000, on and on. The city shall be in the middle. And this shall belong to them as common land for the cities. If you were to total up all 48 cities and all of the land that was given to the Levites for common land, you'd come up with 15 square miles that they had. Now among the cities which you shall give to the Levites, you shall appoint six cities of refuge, to which a manslayer may flee. To these you shall add 42 cities. So all the cities that you will give to the Levites shall be 48. These you shall give with their common land. The cities which you will give shall be 
from the possession of the children of Israel, from the larger tribe you shall give many, the smaller you shall give few. Each shall give some of its cities to the Levites in proportion to the inheritance that each inherits. Now, from verse 9 on, we have a description of the city of refuge. Six of them, three on the west side of the Jordan River, three on the eastern side of the Jordan River. The idea is that these cities of refuge you could flee to within one day's journey on foot. They had to be close enough so you could flee to them. You would flee to them if you did a no-no, if you committed murder. Now let's say you committed murder. You flee to a city of refuge. The idea probably is that since it's a Levitical city, it is, you have the chance of having an impartial hearing. The avenger of blood could not come and kill you. Now, I'll explain that in a minute. You go to the city of refuge. You take refuge in that city. If they find that you're guilty because you killed the dude intentionally, you premeditated it, you murdered him, you can be in the city of refuge, but they'll drag you out and kill you. But at least you could get a trial there. If you were innocent, or if it was like second-degree manslaughter, it was not intentional, it wasn't intentional murder, but, you know, you... Uh, uh, something happened, the other guy died. The avenger of blood, who was a person from the tribe that you committed the murder to, you killed somebody, and then that person has a relationship, like brother or cousin or uncle, that avenger of blood, which was a common person in a Semitic society, would chase you down and kill you. Um, in ancient times, and actually still in some modern areas, if you kill somebody from a tribe in even the Arab world, it is said that there is blood between your families. And the only way to appease that is have somebody from that family kill you or somebody from your family. Then the slate is clean. It's even. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. In certain tribes today, if somebody is murdered, the other tribe will try to appease that victimized group by offering them camels or goats you know, animal sacra. Here, let me give you some payment for it. And though it is acceptable to try to do that, in many cases that is spurned and uh, you're not able to do this. Say, no, it's not good enough. You know, uh, body for body, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And there has to be uh, that um, appeasement of blood. And so to protect somebody who did not intentionally murder from the avenger of blood, um, the cities of refuge were set up. The description of the crime is given. Let's read a, a bit of it. Um, verse 19, the avenger of blood himself shall put the murderer to death. Again, this is intentional premeditated murder. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. If he pushes him out of hatred or while lying in wait hurls something at him so that he dies or an enmity strikes him with his hand so that he dies the one who struck him shall surely be put to death for he is a murderer the avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him but if he pushes him suddenly without enmity or throws anything at him without lying in wait uses a stone by which a man could die throwing it at him without seeing him so that he dies while he was not his enemy or seeking his harm. Then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood according to these judgments. 
So the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood. The congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he has fled, and he shall remain there until the death of the high priest who is anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer at any time goes outside of the city limits, the limits of the city of refuge where he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the limits of the city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood, because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. Now many see a city of refuge as a type of Jesus Christ, and for a good reason. Even if you're guilty, you can find shelter and protection in that city. And so stay in the city. Don't go out of the city. If you're out of the city, man, your life's, you know, it's up to you. If the guy catches you and kills you, tough toast. So you want to be protected? Get inside the city of refuge. That is your protection. Verse 29. Now these things shall be a statute to you throughout your generations and all your dwellings. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses because one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. Now, life is sacred, and the Bible teaches that. There's no disputing that. Life is sacred. God gave it. You're made in the image of man. You're not a biological accident. You didn't start off as a little thing with a tail and then the sun hit it and a freckle formed. You're not a fortuitous occurrence of accidental circumstances with a microscopic beginning and all sorts of heat and energy applied and voila, there you showed up. God created you and you're created in his image. And in Genesis 9 it says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, God made man. That's the death penalty. And I think it's a deterrent. Now, some people disagree. Oh, it's never a deterrent. In Texas, in a Texas prison, there was an inmate-researched newspaper that was published. The inmates said they believed if there were a death penalty hanging over their heads that would practically eliminate all of the inner prison crimes, violence within the prisons, murder that has occurred within the prisons. In fact, two-thirds of the inmates were in favor of the death penalty. One of the professors from the University of North Carolina said for every execution of a murderer, you will save 18 murderers that would otherwise be committed based on his research. It's a powerful deterrent. That's one reason. Life is sacred. You deter murder by imposing the death penalty. But there's a second reason. Verse 32 says, You shall take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore, do not defile the land which you inhabit 
in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. The second reason is retribution. They believe, because of this scripture and others, that the land is defiled when murder is committed and there is no recompense. So to cleanse the land so that it is not defiled, there is retribution. Why? Because God dwells among them. Now you say, well, that's Old Testament. You never read any hint of that in the New Testament. Well, listen to the words of Paul the Apostle, who stood in Caesarea as he was accused before Felix and then Agrippa. And as he was accused of these crimes, he said, let me tell you something. If I have committed anything worthy of death, then execute me. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement. He's saying, I'm willing to face the death penalty if they can find a charge. And it's begin with me. If I've done something worthy of death, I'll uphold it. Go for it. But he knew that there was nothing of a charge that was against him. All right, we'll get into the final chapter and we'll close the book of Numbers. Now the chief fathers of the families of the children of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of the sons of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the leaders of the chief fathers of the children of Israel. And they said, The Lord commanded my Lord Moses to give the land as an inheritance by lot to the children of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord... Uh, you get the difference here, small l, big l. My Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. Do you remember a few chapters back that lib woman liberation movement that actually God sanctioned in that particular instance? The daughters of Zelophehad had lost their father. He died. And they said, look, Mo, it's not our fault. He's dead. He just died. He wasn't in the rebellion, but... There's no sons left. Our father had no sons. We're his daughters. Just because we're girls and not guys, does that mean we lose our inheritance now? Moses said, you know, that's a good question. Let me talk to God about it. He talked to God about it, and God said, yeah, they're right. Give them the inheritance that would be their father's. And the law of the inheritance was outlined of who the land would go to. Well, this poses a problem. Let's say these daughters of Zelophehad marry guys from another tribe. So now the land that they inherit that was, is in their tribe gets shifted to the new tribe in which they marry. So let's say these daughters die. Their new husbands, let's say they're of the tribe of Benjamin. They get that land. So there could be a significant loss of land within that original tribe. And they said, you know, we, we understand that you spoke to God about this, but we have a problem with this original allotment. Now, if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the children of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers, and it will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it will be taken from the lot of our inheritance. When the year of Jubilee, the children of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So their inheritance would be taken away from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. Now, the law was thus given. Okay, great. You can marry whoever you want to. However, if you marry outside of your tribe, you lose the inheritance. If you marry inside of your tribe, great, because now the inheritance will fall within those boundary lines. It's not an issue if you die or at the Jubilee year. So you want to keep the land inheritance marry anybody you want, but to keep the land, you have to marry within your tribe, within your clan, 
You know, you see a guy that's a great-looking kid over there in Benjamin, go for it, but you lose the land. So that was the law. Now, I want to just underscore a principle. Those who would ever level an accusation against God, well, God's male chauvinist, man. He didn't care about women, really. You know that nobody would have heard of Zelophehad if he had sons, probably? But he had daughters, and their daughters were bold, and they received inheritance. And the law of the inheritance came about because of the significant contribution of these gals. So Moses gave the commandment as God gave it to them. Now verse 10. Just as the Lord commanded Moses, so did the daughters of Zelophehad. So this is the amendment of Zelophehad, if you'd like to give a title to this chapter. For Malza, Tizra, Hogla, these are all girls' names, believe it or not, Milcah, Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad were married to the sons of their father's brothers. They were married into the families of the children of Manasseh, the sons of Joseph. Their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's family. These are the commandments. Okay, this is the last verse of this book. I know it's taken a long time, but let's read it slowly. Let's savor it. Take every little bit of it. These are the commandments and the judgments which the Lord commanded the children of Israel by the hand of Moab in the plains of Moab, that extensive plateau by the Arnon River looking down into the land across. In the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Now let me close with another story that I heard about when I was over in the area of Jordan. I heard about it first by a traveler, and then I heard about it at a hospital that treats the Bedouin tribes of the Transjordan. As the story goes, two young men had a fight. It was a heated argument, actually, that ended up into a fight, and as is acceptable even in that part of the world, tempers flare, words fly, and fists fly as well. In anger, one young man stuck, struck the other young man, killing him. He died. Knowing the Arab's passion for revenge, the young man who was the murderer fled through the desert all night, and he came to a sprawling Bedouin tent out there in the Transjordan. He came in and he found the chief, the father, the patriarch who was in charge of the encampment and who dwelled in that tent. He confessed his crime of murder to him. And he said, I seek your protection from the avenger of blood. As the father listened, afterwards he put his hand on one of the guy ropes, stabilizing mechanisms of the tent and swore by Allah, you are in my tent, you will be protected. Well, early the next morning, sounds were heard outside the tent. He's, tent. He's in there. The murderer has fled to that tent. The avengers of blood, relatives of the dead man, had followed his footprints across the sand, and they were rushing into the tent. They were stopped by the old chieftain. He said, wait a minute, I've sworn my protection. You can't come in here. I've given him the protection of my tent. And they said in anger, you don't understand. Do you know who they killed? They killed your son. 
or he killed, he murdered your son. And he turned to him and he said, is, is that true? He said, well, I didn't know it was your son, but he described him. I did kill your son. Now, at this, the chieftain was visibly shaken. Tears welled up in his eyes. He was filled with anger. But he had sworn protection. And he turned to the young man who murdered his son and he said, You have killed my son. Therefore you shall become my son. And all that I have shall be yours. And he demanded sonship, allegiance, the rest of his life. It is believed to be a true story by the Bedouin tribes in that area. They tell it quite frequently. When the news reached the mission hospital where there were many Muslims who were being treated by Christian doctors and nurses, the Muslims said to the Christians, this is what you've been trying to tell us all along, isn't it? God had a son. We killed him. And now he wants to make us his sons and daughters so that all that we have all that God has, all of the inheritance is ours. And many of them came to faith in Christ. Now it is said that because of that mission hospital in Mafrog, Jordan, in every single Bedouin tribe in the Middle East, there's at least one believer. Somewhere. We've killed God's son. And God is willing, because of the death, to make that a substitute for our sins so that everything God has will be yours. The debate of who killed Jesus is a moot point. Did the Romans do it? Did the Jews did it? I did it. You did it. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God is willing to extend His resources to you. It's not some just old story. It's life. And it can be yours. Father, we thank you for the tremendous lessons that are found throughout all of the Bible. Again, this is your curriculum. These are lessons for us. And there is a level of instruction that you desire for us to glean in every page, every verse of Scripture. Lord, we think of that father who lost his son and the tribe was diminished that day, that night. And yet, in exchange, he made the murderer his own son and extended everything. Lord, infinitely more than that comes your grace. Grace freely given. Heaven freely given. A victorious life freely given. But we must receive by faith the inheritance and enjoy it. Lord, it comes first by admitting that we have sinned, admitting the crime, and then the willingness to repent and turn from it. Lord, no doubt you have drawn people into the service tonight who have come at the invitation of a friend, who have come out of curiosity, who have come because they've deemed themselves religious, but something is lacking. They don't know you personally. They don't walk in the intimacy of relationship with you. Oh, Lord, how we'd love, how you'd love, and really how they'd love to see it all change in an instant, where you would instantly wipe away their sins and then hold out that inheritance for them to walk in the rest of their life. We pray that that would be so. 
And we pray also for those who are listening right now in the many areas of this state by radio. That you would also reach out to them in their car, at home, in hospitals, in different settings. And make them your sons and daughters. And as you're continuing to pray, as we close this evening and close the book of Numbers, there could be that some of you tonight who have come don't personally know Jesus Christ yet. You've never surrendered to Him. You've agreed that God exists, but you've never surrendered your life to Him. You've never received Jesus into your life as the center of your life. The Bible says you have to receive Him to become His child. You can't just acknowledge God exists. You have to come by faith and receive Him and ask Him to forgive you. And I'm extending an invitation to you right now. If you'd like to know that you have eternal life, if you would like to have God's forgiveness extended to you and become a part of the family of God and give your life to Jesus Christ, I'd like you to raise your hand right now. Raise it up in the air. Then I'll acknowledge your hand and I'll pray for you as we close this book. Just raise it up. God bless you, ma'am. And you, ma'am, over in the back to my right. Anybody else? Raise it up so I can see it. Way in the back. A few of you. Another person in the back. I see your hand. Anybody else? Just raise it up. God bless you guys. Way in the back. Way in the back. Is God speaking to anyone else? Just raise it up. Say, Skip, I'm willing right now to give my life to Jesus. Your hand, sir. See it? Anybody else? Father, for these we give you thanks. And we pray, Father, for each one who's made that acknowledgement. Father, I would pray that as they receive Jesus into their life, that they would have an assurance that is deeper than anything they've ever known. They'd have the assurance of forgiveness, the assurance of life everlasting, of a new start and of an inheritance incorruptible that does not fade away. We pray, Lord, for each one that as they make a commitment to you, as they surrender their lives to you, that you would show them the plan that you have for their lives. Help them, Father, to inherit what you will give to them now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.